This is the Green Street News, the environmental health show and podcast. Patty and Doug Wood and our worldwide network of experts with your weekly update on what in the world is going on and how it may impact your life. Welcome back. Your body has a clock, an internal clock that regulates all kinds of things about how your body works, things that can impact your health in a big way. And that clock is regulated by the sun. So when your body sees something like the bright screen of a smartphone or laptop or computer at nighttime, it gets totally confused and a series of things start to happen, none of which are good. That story and Patty with the environmental headlines all coming up on this edition of Green Street News. Stay with us. All right, Patty, what happened in the world of environmental health this week? Anything good? There's, you know, you ask me this every week, and there's I do. so much to talk about. Well, so, if anybody okay. knows, you know. Yeah, okay. So here's an article that was published in the New York Times by Christina Jewett. The title is, FDA proposes limits for lead in baby food. Oh, it's about time. They've been working on this for a while. Yeah. So okay, what happened? It's not so great. The Food and Drug Administration has proposed maximum limits for the amount of lead in baby foods like mashed fruits and vegetables and dry cereals after years of studies revealed that many processed products contained levels known to pose a risk of neurological and developmental impairment. The agency issued draft guidance which would not be mandatory for food manufacturers to abide by. The guidelines, if adopted, would allow the agency to take enforcement action against companies that produced foods that exceeded the new limits. So these are voluntary limits that have absolutely no teeth, no enforcement possibility until the FDA formally adopts them, and who knows how long that's going to be. You can have leaded baby food or unleaded baby food. Just like gasoline. There you go. Okay. The new limits aimed at foods for children under two do not address grain-based snacks that have also been found to contain high levels of heavy metals. And they do not limit other metals like cadmium that the agency and many consumer groups have detected in infant foods in previous years. Yeah, I'm sorry to interrupt once more, but last week we had this show with Mary Beth Kirkham, and she was talking about how microplastics are accelerating the uptake of cadmium in plants. Right, so, cadmium that's in the soil. Yeah. That's because microplastics or any type of plastic, as you know, is like static, right? And yeah. it attracts things. Exactly right. And it attracts chemicals, and clearly it is attracting heavy metals as well. Yep. Flint, Michigan was a big deal. The entire country was aware of what was going on there because there was lead in the water. Right. And it was impacting the lives of young children. They have determined that there is no safe level of exposure to lead. Yeah. So I'm not quite sure about proposed maximum limits. I just don't get this. Yeah. But anyway, okay. According to the FDA, the new voluntary limits would result in significant reductions in exposure to lead from food while ensuring availability of nutritious foods. The move is part of the agency's, quote, closer to zero initiative, which is aimed at reducing the exposure of young children to toxins such as lead, arsenic, cadmium, and mercury. Lots of talk, little action. Yeah, that's what it seems like. More you know, reports and voluntary guidelines, but I don't know, how do you get lead out of root vegetables? Or cadmium. Cadmium yeah. is actually more toxic than lead. Some scientists think so. Yeah. All right, so let's talk about another one. Okay. This is also very, very interesting. It was published in Grist by Maria Peraza Rose, and the title is How Pesticides Intensify Global Warming. 
how pesticides mm. intensify global warming. Okay. A new study shows that pesticides are a key contributor to climate change from their manufacturing, transportation, and application all the way to their degradation and disposal. That's according to researchers at the Pesticide Action Network North America, or PANA, who say that while pesticides have been critical tools in agricultural production, their efficacy is on the decline while climate change is driving their increased use. And this is why. According to PANA, the pesticide climate change connection is a loop. Pesticides add emissions to the atmosphere that accelerate climate change, while warming climates stress agricultural systems and increase the number of pests and insects requiring more pesticides. Producing one kilogram of pesticide requires, on average, 10 times more energy than one kilogram of nitrogen fertilizer. Some pesticides, like sulfuryl fluoride, used on insects like termites and beetles, are themselves greenhouse gases. Emitting one ton of sulfuryl fluoride is the equivalent of emitting nearly 5,000 tons of CO2. So this one pesticide is 5,000 times more harmful than CO2 for global warming. That's, you're right. Yeah. California uses nearly 20% of the pesticides applied annually across the United States. 20%. The state supplies a third of the country's vegetables and two-thirds of the country's fruits and nuts. Because fruits and vegetables have such high value, any losses would be expensive, causing California farmers to use nearly five times more pesticides than the national average to avoid losses. It's all about the money. Always about the money. Sure. I mean, you have a valuable crop. You want to protect it, so you're going to use pesticides. There you go. Rising temperatures have led to a drop in crop resilience, heat stress, changing rainfall patterns, more insects, pests, and more places creating higher demand for synthetic chemicals and pesticides. Some research suggests that less than 0.01% of pesticides actually reach their target pests. The excess ends up on other plants or in the soil, water, and air. Hotter temperatures make this problem worse, vaporizing pesticides into a toxic gas, poisoning workers. Researchers say the solution is agroecology, which is farming that emphasizes conservation ecological processes for local conditions and practices like intercropping, where two or more crops grown together to increase biodiversity and promote plant health. It also prioritizes the health and decision-making power of farmers and agricultural workers, which has been shown to improve crop yields, profitability, and resilience against climate impacts. The report says that agroecology leads to better public health, improved food security and sovereignty, and enhanced biodiversity and social benefits. So let's look at the 95% of California farmers who are farming conventionally and ask you how many are going to start embracing agroecology. And this is actually old news for people who know how to grow things, right? The idea of intercropping, we grow two crops together like marigolds and tomatoes, right? So that nature is actually protecting the crop that that you're going to be selling. Okay, what else you got? Car tire chemicals are killing salmon and steelhead. This is from Environmental Health News, written by Kate Raphael. Since the early 2000s, Barb French observed an unexplainable phenomenon among coho salmon in the Pacific Northwest's Puget Sound. When the fish return to their natal streams to spawn, a point in their life cycle when they are typically in excellent health, they behaved strangely. Quote, they'd swim into the banks of the creeks, said French, a researcher at the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. 
They were very disoriented, even swimming sideways. The fish lost their sense of direction, gaping their mouths at the water's surface and splaying their fins. Within a few hours, they died. Last year, a group of Washington researchers pinpointed the cause of these massive fish kills. 6-PPD, a chemical added to tires to prevent them from breaking down. When 6-PPD, which has been used in tires since the 1970s, according to the U.S. Tire Manufacturers Association, reacts with ozone in the atmosphere, it creates 6-PPD quinone, or 6-PPD-Q, a compound that leaches into urban stormwater and watersheds. This derivative chemical has proven difficult to identify and study and is even harder to regulate, given that the chemicals in tires are proprietary and not disclosed by tire manufacturers. Wow. Okay, first of all, you know, there are so many chemicals in tires. It is amazing to me that they've been able to isolate this one particular chemical that is causing this phenomenon in coho salmon. Yeah, I think they have, you know, sharper tools. We're getting better and better at picking out chemicals because it's becoming more and more important for us to be able to identify these things. So I think we've got better techniques for pulling them out. But as you say, there's a whole lot of chemicals in tires, and we don't know exactly what they are because they're considered proprietary. So... So what are you going to do to fix that? Are you going to try to filter out the chemicals as they go down storm drains? I mean, it's crazy. Well, you know, what's interesting is that tires are also one of the largest sources of microplastics that are ending up in these bodies of water. Mm. Not just, you know, lakes and streams, but also the oceans, okay, because we're finding a ton of microplastics. So every tire we know is, is a combination of rubber and plastic, um, and then chemicals, tons yeah. and tons of chemicals. And there's small, these very small bits of degraded plastic are just coming off these tires in unbelievable amounts. It's one of the major, major sources. And we're trying to find, you know, we're trying to find ways to deal with that too. Yeah. So that was a sad article. Let's, um, but I'm curious to hear about Lysol. Tell, yeah, me, well, tell me about what's yeah, going on with so, Lysol. You know, it's interesting. We've actually gotten a couple of calls about this. Mm-hmm. This is an op-ed that was printed in Environmental Health News, and it's written by Nancy Alderman. It is entitled, The EPA Should Not Allow Lysol Air Sanitizer to Be Sprayed in Indoor Environments. The world has learned that the best remedy for a healthy indoor environment is a good exchange of clean air. However, the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency, or EPA, recently registered Lysol Air Sanitizer, a product full of unknown ingredients that could lead to harmful health effects. Lysol Air Sanitizer is 14% dipropylene glycol, commonly found in antifreeze, air fresheners, cosmetic products, solvents, and plastics. There have not been enough long-term studies on the health effects when this chemical is inhaled, as it will be when sprayed in indoor environments air. Secret ingredients make up 86% of the product, including fragrances. Because the EPA does not require companies to release what's in fragrances, little is known about what chemicals are in this product. What do we know about fragrances? Exposures can cause headache, eye, nose and throat irritation, nausea, loss of coordination, and other neurotoxic symptoms. Many fragrance ingredients are respiratory irritants and sensitizers, which can trigger asthma attacks and aggravate sinus conditions. Earlier this year, California passed a law that requires companies to report on the fragrance ingredients in their products. However, there is still no federal law requiring companies to disclose this type of information. So, just let me stop for a second. 
we spend about 90% of our time indoors. That's Americans, right? 90% of our time is spent indoors. It might even be higher now when you add kids to this who spend all this time on their devices instead of running around riding their bikes and doing what kids do outdoors. And the levels of air pollutants are known to be five times higher indoors compared to outdoor levels. Yeah. So this is crazy that they're using this. I mean, crazy. I mean, we, we, all, we talk about this a lot because there are a lot of products that we use in our home that we need to use, like, you know, cleaning products and, you know, laundry detergents and whatever, cosmetics and people use personal care products, shampoos and all those things. And, you know, if they contain these artificial fragrances, we're, you know, we're always, you know, warning them to be careful, especially if they have, have asthmatic children and don't use air fresheners because those air fresheners are extremely dangerous. They pollute your indoor air and then they literally land on surfaces all over your home and they get into your carpeting and they get into your upholstered furniture. It's very, very problematic. As Nancy said at the very beginning of this op-ed, you know, just changing the air in your house is the best way to, yeah, you know. Absolutely. To... Even in the winter, you can open the windows for a couple of minutes just sure. to get some fresh air in. Yeah. COVID-19 actually told us that good ventilation and indoor air quality are the most important things in reducing airborne exposure to viruses. Mm -hmm. Remember, mm -hmm. we had kids with their coats on in classrooms because the teachers had all the windows open in the classrooms yeah. during COVID? Yeah. That's because it works. Okay. Thanks, Patty. You're welcome. They say that timing is everything. Being in exactly the right place at the right time or the wrong place at the wrong time can mean the difference between life and death, rags or riches, success or failure. And so it is with all of nature. Nature has its rules about timing, about the seasons, about sunrises and sunsets, about gestation, puberty, development, not only for humans, but for every animal on Earth. Nature has its cycle for growing and harvesting crops and for tides that come in and go out day after day, year after year. Our bodies are no exception. An internal clock that most of us pay absolutely no attention to tells our body when to wake up, when to go to sleep, when to release hormones, when to initiate other body functions. It's all about the timing. And that timing is regulated by what's happening in the rest of the world. If you go in the morning and you stop to get coffee on your way, you know, and you're going really early and the store is closed and there's no coffee and no donuts, you're, you're kind of aggravated. You missed your opportunity and so now you're grumpy. And it's, it's really no different if, if, you know, you don't have stomach acid at the right time, if you're you know, making too much estrogen at the wrong time. There are consequences to all these small imbalances, and they're all controlled by clocks. Every, every gene in the body has a clock in front of it that controls its production. So our body looks to see what time it is before it does anything. That's Dr. Joshua Rosenthal, one of the nation's leading experts on sleep disorders and the impact of light on how our bodies function. Over the past decade, Dr. Rosenthal, along with medical professionals around the world, has become increasingly concerned about blue light from computers, smartphones, and other electronic devices, and how it may be affecting our internal clock. But how does our body know what's happening in the rest of the world? 
The answer comes up every morning and goes down every night. It's daylight and nighttime that regulate our internal body clock, what's called our circadian rhythm, and it has a critical role to play in our physical and mental health. Circadian rhythms and clocks are really purveyors of our health and wellness and all the systems working properly. You know, unfortunately, the evolution of light has created very energy efficient lighting, but uh, all lights today have a huge spike in the frequencies of blue light that actually can photooxidize and damage parts of the eye and, and other things as well, but particularly parts of the eye that are responsible for helping communicate these light signals for our circadian rhythms to our brain and, and the clock in our brain. As we live this greater and greater screen-dependent indoor life, we're now finding out what the lack of the appropriate signals are. So the sun, with its full spectrum of light, including blue light, sets our internal clock. And the absence of blue light when the sun goes down triggers other functions of the body, like the production of melatonin. This is the natural cycle, and as we begin to disrupt the natural cycle with artificial blue light, we begin to disrupt the body's internal clock. The light signals that we are designed and evolved under are the sun, and, and without those signals hitting our skin and our eyes, communicating into the cells what time it is, when we lose that, we kind of just free run and hope for the best. And um, that's what indoor living is doing. We're increasing the blue light, especially at night, and we're, we're eliminating the solar, the natural sun frequencies that talk to our body, essentially. No different from the cell phone. It's like the sun is our wireless transmitter of information how to run our, our human operating system. The most important clock that you have is the master clock, because that's where everything else in your body looks to to see about the timing. And so, just like you know, we have master clock servers for you know Microsoft and Apple that connect, and your phone has always got the right time, even after daylight savings, and you didn't have to change it like in the old days when we had to go to our phone and go to our clocks and change them by an hour. Your body does that, and so protecting your eyes, because that's the master clock, the you know, suprachiasmatic nucleus, as it's called, it's wired directly to your eyes, and that is where the first signal that sets starts. One of the most critical hormones regulating our bodies is melatonin. Discovered in 1958, melatonin is a hormone that our brain produces in response to darkness. Scientists don't yet understand everything melatonin does in the body, but we do know it helps regulate our sleep-wake cycle and plays a critical role in other aspects of our health. Melatonin is what controls our sleep, and our sleep is when a lot of important things are kind of orchestrated and timed together. And so the excessive blue light, especially at night, destroys that kind of natural timing mechanism that we have. And unfortunately, that light can damage structures, and so it's a double whammy in that not only is it messing up the clock, but it's damaging the cogs in the clock for them to turn properly. I always like the paleo perspective because it's like, what would cavemen do, right? Well, cavemen didn't have any blue light, so when the sun went down, you know, there was no blue light. And so when the sun goes down, you were designed to not see any blue light frequencies. And so if the sun goes down and you're looking at those frequencies, whether it be on this, the phone, the tablet, the computer, TV, the LED lights or complex fluorescent lights above your head, you know, even if you say, well, I'm just reading a book, but if you have a light on that has blue light, you are essentially sending a signal that does not match how you were designed. 
So blue light from the screens on all our electronic devices is disorienting our natural internal clock, and the negative consequences for our mental and physical health are significant. This should be especially concerning for the parents of children and teenagers, most of whom spend a great deal of time on their phones, computers, tablets, laptops, and other devices, pumping out the blue light no matter the time of day. There's two opportunities as a parent. One is as a teacher, uh, and the other is as a dictator. And um, I think as we all know, the dictatorship works maybe better when they're younger and uh, less just so as they get old. The best teacher is experience. And if you're not aware of something as a problem, you can't make it better. And so there are teenagers who are, have headaches all the time and have all these problems, and, and they would like to get better. And, uh, you know, the parents take them to the doctor, and the doctor has no answer, or maybe give them some pills. And, but if they could actually do something and see for themselves that it makes the headaches go away, and that when they do this one thing, meaning have excessive blue light at night, that it brings on the headaches, then they have a choice. It's like smokers, you know, I mean, I look at it as, you know, blue light is, an EMF is the new smoking. It just doesn't have a warning label on it. Blue light, just like smoking, is, uh, it is addictive. And, and I would say EMF is addictive in the sense that, you know, we also have this, you know, psychological warfare, you know, of gamifying and, and kind of the addictiveness of the, the apps and the social media and the, and the whatnot. And, but, you know, I will tell you that the addictiveness comes from the fact that we are really, you know, all becoming dopamine deficient. And, and, and again, dopamine is a chemical that's programmed by the solar frequencies uh, of the sun. And uh, when you never see the sun and you're dopamine deficient, then any little hit of dopamine is exciting. And, you know, that's where the like button on Facebook evolved. And uh, now it's it's so more sinister than that uh, with, you know, the amount of psychological warfare that's used you know, to keep you uh, on the apps and, and, and doing whatever it is they want you to be doing on there. Because uh, you're the product, you're not the customer. We think we're the customers of these platforms, we're really the products. Some exposures, of course, are worse than others. Virtual reality headsets, especially those that are wireless, can be extremely harmful for kids, not only because of the extreme blue light, but also because of the RF radiation associated with all wireless devices. These VR headsets, to me, this is like the ultimate, the top of the list of things that are sure to hurt your child. I mean, it's it would almost be akin to saying, you know, here's a vial of heroin and some needles and go shoot up. I mean, it's, it's that damaging. From a light perspective, we're putting the light as close to the eyes as possible. And obviously, they're going to get addicted to this and they're using this more. And so you're blasting the blue light power as strong as you can right into the, to the eyes. And then, of course, these things are all emitting EMF and all kinds of wireless frequencies, and it's right on the head. So it's like taking duct tape and taping your cell phone to your head. I mean, to me, again, if, if people understood the biophysics of health, they would think this is terrorizing somebody. You know, this is, this is destroying somebody's biology in such a violent way. Again, uh, people are voluntarily paying lots of money to buy these things. It's, it is a shame. And again, it seems like it's so fun and... You know, I've never put one of those things on. I, I hope to, you know, to never do it. But, uh, I mean, again, it's that curiosity. Oh, this is so cool. It's so immersive. Yeah, that's great. But it's not designed to protect you in any way from, you know, things that are known to really be bad. I think all computers should have 
some sort of software to help protect and decrease the blue light, especially after you know sundown. And, and you know there are options out there that do that. I think you need to get out outside as much as possible. The most important start would be to get out in the morning, kind of when the sun rises. You know, and again, teenagers, these are their naturally later uh, awakening. But again, that's because you know if you look at the history of teenagedom, if you will, they're they're up later and they've always been under lights of some sort, even before it was, you know, LED lights. They've always been up later and so that that advances their clock. And so teenagers are known to be, you know, having that issue. And then, you know, the opposite is true is, you know, the elderly tend to be early risers, but they wake up early and, you know, they're also the elderly is the least tech savvy. They're not usually going up and getting right on the computer. And so, you know, these are natural clock variations that we've seen over history, and we, you know, we have names for all these things in, in medicine, but they're really just expressions of how the clock goes off. And that was just kind of a natural day-to-day clock problem, but now we're seeing, you know, the result of really breaking the cogs. Given the proven harm of blue light on our internal systems and the downstream effects it can have on our health and mental well-being, you would think that the media would be filled with warnings for parents to limit screen time. But that would be antithetical to the industry. You know, the idea that all of our media forms come in the package of blue light and EMF today means that to spread knowledge that blue light and EMF is bad is to actually destroy those media channels itself. And since they're all based on sales and commercials, and you can see what a double-edged sword that is and conflict of interest, you know, and, and there's usually, you know, little play on these sorts of topics, and, uh, and rightly so, because it's destructive to the industry that's trying to get it out. Being a parent isn't easy, and it's not getting any easier, as our kids are growing increasingly distanced from their direct personal relationships in favor of their online relationships. But parents still have the responsibility to do what's right for their kids. Our job as parents should be trying to keep our kids off these things, or at least trying to mitigate the damage. And and unfortunately, you know, the best way to sell the media is to not let us know how bad it is. It's really the cigarette solution, you know, is to deny that it's causing any problems as long as you can. The good news, I think we're at a tipping point. I mean, I think there's such a great amount of science and and publications on blue light and and its damage that it can cause that this is not a unfounded kind of idea anymore. If you're seeing, you know, more isolation, social isolation, if you're seeing any sort of depressive or, you know, anxiety symptoms, you know, if your your child's complaining of sleep issues, obviously that's certainly, you know, an obvious one. You know, ultimately there's a lot of different ways this can can manifest. Obviously mental health I think is something as parents that we're probably more attuned to and so this is kind of, you know, the maternal or paternal kind of instincts that there's something going on. You know, headaches uh, and, and sleep issues, if you're hearing that, that should be, in my opinion, that should be something that really you want to tune in because that may be the only sign that they're going to share with you because they're not going to, I don't think this has changed over the last, you know, 20, 30 years of teenagers, they don't tell your parents that much. So if you're, you're going to have to notice, they're not going to say, hey, mom, I'm depressed. Hey, mom, I'm anxious. You're going to notice, you know, the behavioral changes. Uh, and I think, you know, it's our due diligence now more than ever as parents to be on top of what's going on with our kids. You know, I think in the old days, you know, you could just let your kid go out and be back for supper. But I think we really need to pay attention because the signs may be kind of 
masked from us if we're really not connected. And again, the whole technological world we live in is one of disconnect. So I think we, we have to just really be on top of our kids. Dr. Josh Rosenthal, one of the country's leading experts on sleep disorders and the effect of blue light on our physical and mental health. That's going to do it for our show today. Special thanks to our friend and colleague, Dr. Josh Rosenthal, our news editor, Ellen Weiniger, our engineer, Josh Lyman, our associate producer, Toby Ziegler, our social media director, Donna Moss, and our marketing director, Sam Seaborn. I'm Doug Wood. Patty and I will be back next week with another edition of Green Street News. Thanks for listening.